0: Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Dylan Bowman, here today with Craig Thornley, the race director for the iconic Western States 100-mile endurance run, the granddaddy of them all, the oldest 100-mile trail race in the world, which in 2023 celebrates its 50th year. This is Craig's 11th year as the race director, a tenure that by all objective measures has been wildly successful. So it was great to finally get Craig on the show. In the conversation we discuss the Memorial Day training camp last weekend. We discuss Craig's predecessor, Greg Soderlund. We talk about the race's nonprofit status and how that makes it different. We talk about Craig's incredible history as a volunteer and as a racer at Western States. We talk about the restoration effort after the mosquito fire last fall. We talk about Lessons in leadership, the 2023 snowpack, the 2024 golden ticket calendar that was just announced, and a lot more. It was an honor to have Craig on the show, and I hope you all enjoy the conversation. As always, the Free Trail Podcast is presented by our good friends at Speedland, the footwear partners and the makers of the GS TAM, the new maximally cushioned trail shoe released this past spring. The GS TAM is the third commission for Speedland, and we're all super proud of this amazing product like the other two footwear commissions the gs tam is made in small quantities we are already out of size 13s and we are running low on inventory and in some of the other more popular sizes so if you're on the fence now would be a good time to go grab a pair in your size before they sell out and are therefore gone forever. Go grab a pair. And when you do so, please use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off your order over at runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10. If you're in the market for some coaching, check out Free Trail experts where badass trail pros like Black Canyon champion Keeley Henninger and Team USA athletes MK Sullivan and Hannah Allgood are ready to take your game to the next level. The great thing about using a free trail coach is that you automatically become a member of the free trail pro community and get all the perks inherent in that membership. Not only do you get a great coach who will provide amazing one-on-one service, but you also get a vibrant community to share the journey with. Free trail experts, we're coaching and community go hand in hand, visit freetrail.com forward slash freetrail dash experts or find the link in the show notes. Hope you all enjoy the conversation with Craig Thornley. Thanks for tuning in. Craig Thornley, welcome to the podcast. Good to see you.
1: Thanks, Dylan. Great to be here.
0: We were just lamenting our mutual fatigue after Western States Memorial day training camp. How are you feeling after Uh, what is a dress rehearsal for race day itself?
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually probably a little bit, um, harder in some respects because I gotta, you know, I gotta get prepared to do a talk before each run and we have, we have to account for every runners each day instead of just one event um, so you have these really, you know, uplifting moments when everybody's in at the end of the day, like, oh yeah, we're done. And then we got to just ramp back up and then we come down, ramp back up. So in some ways it's, it's even more fatiguing than, than the race day. Cause when the race is over, it's, it's over, right? We just crash and sleep and, and mentally relax. But
0: What's the history with the Memorial day training camp? Cause I think a lot of people don't really appreciate the production that it is. It almost is like a three-day running event. There's aid stations, there's volunteers, there's food at the finish line, there's massage tents. So it's almost like a real race experience. I'd love to know sort of more of the history of, of Memorial Day camp and how it's evolved.
1: Yeah, it's been going, I, th- I think it's one of the best deals in ultra running. Uh, I just had a conversation with the Polettis when they were here for the canyons, <laughs> and they were, they were asking about how many people show up and and they couldn't believe it was only, it was $55 for Saturday and $50 for Sunday and Monday. And they're like, you could charge a whole lot more. You know? <laughs> it's like, well, we don't care. We wanna yeah. keep it low key. We wanna create this atmosphere where people just have a chance to to see the trail and maybe, maybe be exposed for the first time if they're in the race or not. If they're in the race, you know, they could be a little bit scared after Saturday, both the snow and the and then the ups and the downhills. And, um, but it used to be, I think it's been going on at least since the 80s. Um, it used to be a camp. When Norm Klein was conducting, they camped up at the sawmill site, which is the top of Bath Road. And there would be meals and evening activities. Um, and then that changed probably 15 years ago or so before I before I got here. And it's it's actually, it's something that we've thought about going back to camping, but you know, there's so many lodging opportunities and food opportunities that if, if you're, if you're training hard, you know, it's probably better that you, you get a good night's sleep or at least you're in a bed. And, um, but yeah, we're, we're pretty relaxed on the cutoffs. We don't know exactly when we start. We asked that people try to maintain an 18 minute pace which is 30 hour 100 mile pace but yeah. we were way behind that on saturday <laughs> we were 45 minutes later than that at deadwood and then over an hour at michigan bluff and you know we're not trying to be like the race where okay yeah. at two you're cut you're out give me your wristbands. just just have a good time and and have have a lot of
0: yeah, it was so fun, man. I, I mean, having had a million conversations over the weekend, I think what you said is perfectly accurate and that it it's an event for really anybody. You know, you don't have to be on the entrance list for Western States. It's the perfect way to come experience the trail in a supported capacity with a great community element with so many hundreds of people there of all different skills and abilities and experience levels. And yeah, I had the good fortune of, running at tempo pace with some of the elite women that are going to be in the race this year. And then also sort of like on the bus, catching up with folks who aren't even in the event, but who carved out a weekend to just come and run on the Western States trail It's a really special thing. And I think while we're talking about history, this is your 10th year as race director, right? This will be the 10th race. Eleven. 11. 11. So you, I know were sort of apprenticed in 2012. And I thought it would be fun to have you speak a little bit about your predecessor, Greg Sutherland, the race director before you, because I know he in some ways encouraged you to apply for the job. (laughs) And I I didn't know uh, Greg personally myself, but uh, you know, from what I understand, he was a, you know, very well respected race director. Um so I'd love for you to just maybe tell the story of your guys's relationship and how he encouraged you to apply for the job.
1: Yeah, so it was two thousand eleven. Um right before the race. I think it was Thursday no, it was Friday night before the race. Uh I knew that he was retiring. They hadn't advertised, the board hadn't advertised or the job yet, but we knew it was happening and there was there was a a race director here in town who took over a couple of his other events that he owned. He didn't own Western States. So he didn't get to make the decision on who was going to succeed him at Western States. But, um, he says on Friday night to me, he goes, Craig, you know, it's not decided yet. Who's going to be the next race director. Like, Oh my (laughs) (laughs) gosh. I knew exactly what he meant. And I didn't sleep that night. And the whole next day I was scared. Like, man, can I actually do this? This is so much bigger than Waldo, which I had yeah. directed for, for uh, 10 years or so before that. Wow. Uh, I, I, I wish I could blame my 2011 <laughs> race on that, but it definitely, it definitely planted the seed cause I really wasn't planning on being a race director. I thought maybe I'd end up on the board yeah. at that point. Cause I was a big fan of the race and I, I wrote, um, a blog, conduct the juices that spoke directly to the board of directors many times. And, uh, you know, it was all Western state centric. So dude, uh, I
0: remember that. And maybe we'll come back around to talking about the blogs because conduct <laughs> the juices was appointment reading for me when I was coming up in the sport. And there was many other blogs yeah. that were similarly was- influential in the sport and, and with me personally.
1: Yeah, and the, and the blog was great because it had it had some really serious stuff where I spoke directly to the board, and then it had a lot of banter, mostly between AJW and myself, back and forth. Um, but yeah, Greg, uh, <laughs> Greg, wow, um, I I spent that whole race just trying to trying to wrap my head around could I do this job, and and he told me after after I got hired, he said. Um, he said he really felt it when he took the job. How he felt the responsibility that that this race meant so much to so many people—not just the runners, but the the fifteen hundred volunteers each year, probably many, many thousands of volunteers over over the years—and he didn't want to screw it up. You know? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I don't I don't usually go into things thinking that I don't want to mess up. I just I usually just think about going forward and making, making things better. And, uh, but yeah, he was, he was, um, he handled a lot of details. He and I had very different management styles. He, he would, he had a really flat organization. So he had lots of people reporting to him where I just can't handle that many people, uh, reporting to me. So we, we delegated things out, we changed, we changed things a bit. Yeah. Um, I don't know how he I don't know how he answered all the people that
0: (laughs) well the race has also grown exponentially under under your watch
1: yeah in fairness to me it has (laughs) Yeah, it did the
0: same for him for sure too I think you know but it's a sort of an interesting moment when he did hand off the reins to you and again I didn't know Greg personally but I know that he was well regarded in the community and that I'm sure you probably felt that there was big shoes to fill which I think everybody agrees you've been able to do so, uh, admirably, but uh, maybe, uh, going a little deeper on that, just sort of like, to what extent you balancing, like, you know, being respectful to the legacy of the event and your predecessor versus ushering the race into a new generation. how do you think about that?
1: Well, Greg actually, um, I, I think and I, I I didn't want this to happen, but I think he viewed any changes that I that I wanted to make as an, an indictment on the way he did things. And that was not at all my intent. I hope whoever takes over after me looks at all the things in the race that could be improved and improves on those things because there's there's you can still grow. The race can grow. But yeah, I think he took he took a lot of the stuff that I did. Anything I wanted to change. He's Like, don't do that, Craig. Like, well, Greg, I want to, I want to make this race go forward. You know, I've been thinking about this now for a while and I have a a list of things that I I think are low hanging fruit and I'm going to, and I'm going to pick that fruit, you know? Um, but he didn't, you know, he didn't go out obviously the way he wanted. He, he had kidney cancer and, um, He just didn't, he didn't last as long as he had, he had hoped. So we made the transition a little bit earlier than he originally planned. Um, But I think he went out, I think he went out feeling good about where the race was and it was in, it was in my hands. Somebody was going to take it maybe in a little bit different direction, but I think he was, I think he felt okay that it's not suddenly just going to go off the cliff and and become a, an obscure, (laughs) irrelevant race on the world scene.
0: Yeah. Well, whatever happens, uh, it, Greg passed in 2016, but whatever happens in the, in the afterlife, I'm sure he's proud of, uh, the way you've directed the race, but thanks for entertaining me on that. Cause I've always been curious as to, you know, how that transition went for you and, and just like the enormity of that responsibility and kind of stepping into the race director role for of race like Western States, which is of course, you know, a a massive undertaking, not only from a logistical standpoint, but also probably a burden that you have to wear sometimes and wanting to be respectful to the legacy, but then also knowing that there's improvements that can be made. And I'm sure we'll come back around and talk more about some of the things that you have done in the last decade that you have been at the helm, but maybe going further back in time, just to set the context for the audience. I know you've told this story before, but I'm sure people would find it entertaining who haven't heard you tell the story of you and your brother, Chris, and how you discovered Western States when you guys were kids.
1: Yeah, so we grew up primarily in the Bay Area. We moved around a lot. My dad was in the Air Force. We we moved around a lot, but primarily in the Bay Area. And my parents split up and my stepdad and mom uh decided hey let's let's move to cool california like where in the hell is cool california we were not necessarily city people but we were not rural we didn't grow up in a rural place and so it, it was it was a pretty abrupt change moving to auburn lake trails where the 85 mile aid station is now uh, but we totally fell in love with being able to go outside in our backyard we had this big river big canyon so we were we were in the canyon all the time and i know today parents would not let their kids do what we did um we got to go down there we were camping there in july of i think it was 78 or june of 78 june or july of 78 right at a boken canyon creek uh, which is if you're coming from the green gate going in course direction it's it's the uh it's the creek that has a little bit of the concrete left over <laughs> we were sleeping right on the trail absolutely stupid place to camp <laughs> and a runner comes by and asks us where the aid station was we had no idea what he was talking about <laughs> and then uh more came through and we eventually realized that oh my goodness we're just a couple miles from the arm Trails aid station they had run 83 miles and they were on their journey to auburn that's 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 how we found out about the race.
0: And what an unbelievable way to discover the event. And you must pinch yourself. You and Chris must laugh hysterically about that at least once a year, just seeing how much of an impact it's had on your personal life and the fact that, you know, you're now the race director and a nine-time finisher of this ridiculous event yourself.
1: Well, we 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 both saw the look in their eyes. We we hadn't experienced it. I was in seventh grade. My brother was younger than that. But we knew whatever knack they had experienced that we wanted to experience the same thing. We want we wanted to know what they were going through, yeah. and that, that stuck with both of us for, for all these years. But yeah, it was it was pretty impactful.
0: So, adding further color there, I know you also had a tradition of volunteering at the Dusty Corners Aid Station, like through the eighties and nineties. So, maybe provide any fun memories or anecdotes from that, or or just generally like what the what the vibe of the race was like at that time
1: oh it was it was it was as um cohesive the the eight station crews were as cohesive as, as they are now we would we would show up after not seeing anybody we'd show up on race day with mostly the same people the same core group of people and it was like we had you know seen each other last weekend it was it was pretty darn fun um I my brother and I were the runners, so we got to deal with any runner type issues. Most of these people were not runners that yeah. were volunteers. <laughs> that was really interesting to me that they weren't runners. Um, uh, some of them were, but most of them were not runners. Um, so we got um uh, we got to deal with any cramping issues or uh shoe issues. <laughs> uh we got to deal with some serious stuff. do when Donald Choi had uh got airlifted out he was treatment. um I I was asked to help him and I didn't know what the hell was going on with him And he ends up you know having a seizure and getting airlifted out so it was pretty serious stuff yeah. it wasn't all just oh this is fun <laughs> helping people um but I got to see Ann Tracy and Tim Tweetmeyer so I got to, I got to have all these these uh idols uh, come through and yeah, it was it was really a fun time yeah. working at Sea course It's so cool that you just
0: have that connection with the event, and it's funny to hear you provide that characterization of the aid station crews because I know there is a deep camaraderie and a lot of people who have served the race admirably for years and years who volunteered at the same aid stations, and they're sort of like these teams within the greater Western states. Uh, volunteer army um and i know they take a lot of pride in that and i think there's probably a lot of people who wouldn't you know classify themselves as runners who pour so much effort into the race
1: it's one of the great things about it that yeah two two of our longest serving aid station captains right now i think they're 38 and 37 years they are not runners and they have been captaining aid stations for almost 40 years.
0: Which which aid stations are that? Can you give a shout out yeah. to those people?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Legrand Scott and his wife, Diana, uh, they're at Red Star. And then uh Gerald um at El Dorado, Gerald Bretag at El Dorado Creek.
0: Amazing. Breitag. So cool. Yeah,
1: they're 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 amazing. And they are not runners. Yeah. And they tell me that every time I see them, like, I'm not a runner, Craig. Like, I know that. It's yeah. okay. You don't have to be a runner. Yeah. You you do a great job at your aid station. You,
0: Getting to the nuts and bolts of the race operation, you mentioned at the start of our conversation about the Paletti's, and obviously they operate with a different model. And I don't think a lot of people understand that Western States operates as a nonprofit. So maybe if you could just provide uh, any idea, like for the, for the audience who's listening, just sort of like how that makes the Western States operation different, in particular for you as the race director.
1: Well, I'll, I'll relay one more anecdote. Um, <laughs> when Andrew Messick from Ironman was was visiting the United States and they were looking around by by, by races, um, they had dinner. The Paletti's were here and, and a couple other Ironman folks. And it was during the pandemic. So we ate outside in November, December. It was really cold. We, fought, we came in after dinner and I show them a buckle. I show them a, a silver buckle. And Andrew uh, asked me how much they cost. And I said, yeah, they're whatever they were at the time, $435 or something. And he says, and what's your entry fee? I said, $410. <laughs> and he says, how does that work?
0: He said, you're a terrible businessman, Greg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he said,
1: it's not me. It's the board. It's <laughs> like <laughs> well, we're not burdened with having to make a profit. You know, it's not about making a profit. So we can do, we can do things like that. Um, As long as we obviously, we can't go in the red. We wouldn't, wouldn't survive if we, if we uh, were in the red every year, but it does, it does allow us to do things differently than, we just hired administrative assistant, Carrie Ming, we met Mm -hmm. this weekend and, you know, we, I, I told her many times we we do things at Western States, like assigning the requested bib number. Right? It seems like a pretty trivial thing to do, but it's not easy. It takes a long time. And if you were doing this for a business, and you you had another race next month and a race after that, there's no way you'd spend that time on that. But but we're, we can we can do that. We can do things that are. That are special that you would not do if you were efficiently trying to run a business and make money. You just wouldn't do it. <laughs> so, um, it's funny. Yeah.
0: I, I remember it, laughing with Timothy Olson about the year that he was issued bib number four twenty.
1: I don't know if that was
0: <laughs> if that was your doing or a request of his, but
1: <laughs> no, it wasn't mine. Yeah, <laughs> you know, some years it's it's ninety nine or a hundred or. 420 used to be. <laughs> um, it's not the same most requested bib number every year. Yeah, yeah.
0: So uh, back to the nonprofit thing. Yeah. Do you have a sense as to why it was set up that way? Because to me, it it feels like an extraordinary act of foresight and vision that's allowed the race to operate with so much integrity and so much independence over the course of decades.
1: Well, it, it it splintered from the Western States Trail Foundation, the nonprofit that puts on Tevis. Um, so I think they were using that model, and that that came from Wendell Roby, I guess. I, 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 he predated us by, by twenty years, um, twenty five years, I think. So they just they spun off from that. They used that as the model, and and kept it that way forever does it
0: feel to you like it's sort of a blessing to operate as a nonprofit versus doing things that would maximize revenues and bottom line, because it does change the whole feel of the race.
1: Well, I have never been a for-profit race director, so I'm not sure if I can really compare. Sure. But I have thought thought recently, um, well, the last few years, you know, what do I do after this job or do I do anything? Do I just retire and yeah. be the trails guy? Just carry a chainsaw around all the time, yep. uh, which is attractive right now. Um, and I don't know if I could go to a four. I don't know if I could, if I could work for Iron Man and, yeah. and, and, and really be worried about the bottom line all the time. I, I, I don't, I don't know how I do personally on that, but it definitely allows us um, to, 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 to maintain our independence, you know, when people were pontificating that oh, Western States is going to be bought up by Ironman and UTMB, no, we're not for sale. It's never going to happen. We're we are in a we're, we're in a position that that is not an option. That's just not going to happen.
0: Yep.
1: Um, so I, I think I would I wouldn't want it to be any other way. I'm not sure if Western States was a for profit, that I'd be the race director for Western states. Mm.
0: This episode is brought to you by HVMN and their Ketone IQ Supplement. Ketones are important macronutrients with clinically studied benefits for increasing energy and focus throughout the day. Ketone IQ is brain fuel, naturally increasing your blood ketone levels in just a simple, handy two-ounce shot, the perfect thing to throw down the hatch whenever you need an extra boost, either in your training or in your daily life. My wife Harmony and I have become really enamored with this product, honestly, between running our business, my increasing training load, and being parents. We've been operating at full capacity for a long time. I had specifically become overly reliant on caffeine throughout the day until I started taking this product, and I have to say it has really helped me to feel more focused and energized, and especially in my training. I have been having a ketone IQ shot in the mornings before all my long runs, and it really does help me feel steady energy for hours on end, even when the baby has Kept me up at night. This stuff has evidently become really popular in cycling and is just now being discovered by runners. So go check it out. You won't be disappointed. Visit hvmn.com, look up the Ketone IQ, use code FREETRAIL20 for 20% off. HVMN.com, use code FREETRAIL20. Maybe you could provide a little color as to how the structure of the organization operates because, you know, obviously you report to the board of trustees and I know that's been a really, I don't know, that's been a, a cohort of individuals over the course of th- those decades that have helped to steer the race forward. So maybe talk as the race director, how you interface with, with the board and, and how they sort of, uh, are supportive of your work.
1: Well, this has evolved quite a bit in the eleven years that I that I've been here. The board used to be involved in a lot of um, of the operations type of decisions, mm. and I think that really limited what the race director can do, and, and it made it pretty frustrating for him. And I think it was hard on the board too. Uh, but with Diana Fitzpatrick, our, our president, uh, she has really been um, clear on. This is an operations issue. This is totally Craig. He, he doesn't need to get the board to approve this type of uh, problem. And it just, it allows me to, to be, to, to, I'm unencumbered with, with board discussions, which as you know, can go pretty long at times now on, on pretty simple things or not simple things, but things that you can't spend all your time. You can't spend an hour and a half talking about some of these issues that, mm-hmm that uh, could be decided by me um, but the board is very active uh, as, as she pointed out um, the, the different board members over the years that had it, it, it's probably similar to life in general business in general there's a few there's a few people that do a hell of a lot of the work mm. and that's probably been the case since the very beginning of Western States, it's a few people that really do all the work. Um, but I am still the sole employee. We now have, we have five managers now, including the administrative assistant that we just hired. Um, none of them make enough money to live on. They have mm-hmm. to, they have to have either retired from their real jobs or, or they they have enough income from their, and enough the flexibility in their current job that they can do this. Um, and then the vast majority of folks are are just volunteers. And, yeah. and I get I mean, unbelievably qualified people who are working with you know, Ted Knuts and Joe Steinmetz and Matt Keys. Like these are brilliant people. That, <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. If I if I had to pay them, it would I wouldn't be able to I wouldn't be able to do it. So pretty pretty darn cool that there are that many volunteers that there are not many people that really want to work hard. And obviously the board is, doesn't get paid either. So it's,
0: it's I'm an right. honor. It's an honor. I think uh, speaking yeah. for people like Ted yeah. and Matt keys, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, fantastic to be able to be of service to this amazing event and sort of serve its mission, being of service to the trail running community. You mentioned how you're the sole employee, and I know this is a a full time job for you year round. Maybe you could just paint a a quick picture as to what this next month looks like for you as we enter crunch time with race day approaching (laughs) now after Memorial Day. Well,
1: well, there are a couple big milestones that have that happened along the way to to the race day one of them is getting the race program done and that's in the middle of may um publishing a magazine once a year i'm not a mag- magazine publisher that is so hard <laughs> it is really really painful and the editing process of putting getting the magazine together um it's not like passing around a word document and then you know accepting changes or rejecting changes it's it's yeah. it's annotating the pdf and then submitting that to the designer who's already got it in InDesign. design so correcting mistakes is wow it's a cumbersome process and and the and that once that deadline passes then it's training runs and and those have passed <laughs> this last weekend and uh, then we have one more big milestone and that is the aid station supply pickup that's two weeks before the race we put together all the non-perishable items and including the pop-ups and 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 those kinds of things but the non-perishable food items um and once that gets out there's 28 stations so the the warehouse the the captains
0: come and pick all the non-perishables up
1: yeah yeah so we we have all their aid station supplies and each one is unique each aid station is, is slightly different than the other uh, once that's out the door it's it's probably harder to stop the race at that point than to let it go on it's just it's in autopilot at that point really? it's it's happening everybody is everybody's moved uh so we got a couple more weeks of that and, and this year because of the snow and the fire we got quite a bit of, of trail work still to do here in this last month the snow has prevented us from going any higher than dusty corners right now on, on trail work as you, as you probably saw yep. when you, when you ran this <laughs> yeah, weekend. We'll, we'll
0: talk about the snowpack here in a second and and the <laughs> fire yeah
1: so we got we're going to have a lot of work going to be at the, uh, the last minute 2017 and 2019 similar types yeah. of uh of uh snowpacks and and trail work and 2017 was a year I ran as a race director and I was so exhausted from doing trail work right before the race that uh Know this year I'm I'm not running and I'll probably never do that again. But there'll be a lot of last minute stuff and 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 a core group of folks will be out there trying to shovel the snow, the last drifts of snow to Red Star Ridge or or Lion Ridge. Yeah, Um, yeah,
0: yeah. Let's come back to that in a sec. But let's talk a bit about your experience running the event. You are a nine time finisher in addition to being the race director now for. 11 years, you mentioned your finish in 2017, which was your ninth finish. And that was like a notoriously difficult year. I think, you know, probably the hardest running conditions in the last decade. So particularly tough year to manage the event, but then also a a tough year to run the race. Maybe if there's any anecdotes from the 2017 iteration of the race, as you were chasing cutoffs and uh you know finishing in golden hour while also you know like you said dealing with all the exhausting responsibilities as the race director all the way up until race morning
1: so before I ran 2017 I obviously was preparing the the organization for me to run and Tim Tweetmeyer thought oh this is great Craig if you can if you can get the race to run without you having to press any buttons or touch anything, getting a phone call, then the the organization is in a a better place than it was before. So yeah, that's a great idea. I I agree with you. So we worked on all the delegation models and on race day, I have have my radio in my truck and I I, I would hear all the radio traffic. We have uh, RD2s that sit at net control. There's always somebody at net control with the designation of RD2 and they make decisions on my behalf. I hear all these things and it's it was oftentimes really hard not to jump on the radio and and, and say what I wanted to say. I just have to let things uh, resolve the way the RD2 wanted them to or, yeah. or thought. And sometimes it wasn't exactly what I would do, but I realized I have to let that happen if I'm going to run the race. Yeah. And so I did. And we, when when we got to race day, it really was not. It was not hard for me to be off the grid, running the race. What was hard was all the prep in the last two weeks, all the trail work. Yeah. My, I didn't even think about my race until 5 p.m. on Friday before the race. I- I, you know, like use, I haven't use, done
0: this since 2011. How do I even yeah. like uh, th- these packs yeah, I are I totally didn't, didn't, different now? The footwear is totally different.
1: <laughs> I didn't tape my feet. I didn't think about the drop bags or I just it was it was not good. I would not advise a future race director to do what I did in 2017. Yeah. Not with the race at the level that it's at right now. Um, but so say a little bit more
0: about the RD twos, and this goes back to what you said earlier about having a flat organization versus sort of a, a, a more vertical or, uh, organization. So maybe you could shout out some of the people that you empower to sort of make those
1: decisions. Yeah, who's my wife changes. is one, yeah. John, John Katz is one, uh, Bill Hambrick is one and Sherry Alvarez is, is the fourth. That's who yeah. we got going right now. And we'll, we'll discuss scenarios. Um, like what happens if, uh, if, a uh, a fire breaks out at this part of the course. And then we'll brainstorm, well, how would I resolve? And really what I want them to do is is think the way that I, I would think because they're filling in for me. So I don't necessarily want to tell them exactly what to do, but I want, them, I want them to think the way that I would think through a problem. And we do that every year. And I feel really good about Um, and we also practice at other races, like pine to palm, we work together and canyons, we work together. So we get to practice at other races. Um, and yeah, Joe Steinmetz is the ham radio lead and he's also getting closer to an RD2 now. Um, but he doesn't necessarily, the the radio folks don't necessarily want to make decisions. They just want to relay information. They want to communicate. They want someone there at net control to answer questions all the time. And some races don't have that. And it's pretty frustrating for Joe when he's at a race that doesn't have, he doesn't have a direct line to the RD Mm -hmm. and they have to make decisions right now. So we always have an RD2 who can answer to the communication folks, answer questions that they have right now. But it's a, it's a good model. I inherited that model. Um from Greg. Yeah. So it was it was good.
0: Yeah, well I I think it just speaks to what you said earlier of just the quality of people who are attracted to the race and so not to say your job is easy, Greg. We all know it's not, but that you have a great team of competent people who you can trust in tough moments and who can be supportive of you as the leader of the organization. Let's talk more about this year. This has been a challenging year too. I bet you're happy you don't have to <laughs> run the race this year. Yes. The, mos- the Mosquito Fire, let's start start with that. That was happened back in the fall and I'm sure there's a lot of people who'd love an update. So maybe just give the listeners a sense of the damage that occurred and the restoration effort, how it's tracking at this point.
1: Yeah, so it burned about 16 miles of the course uh, in- including a couple communities Michigan Bluff was you know pretty devastated but not completely devastated fortunately where our aid station is as you saw this last weekend somehow survived but some homes completely untouched they look green and then right next door there's nothing but the chimney right it was pretty it was pretty pretty hard because I know a lot of people there uh, a lot of friends um, that was, that was pretty hard, but with respect to the trail, uh, burned 16 miles, some in the forest service so from swinging bridge, uh, basically to, to the turnoff to, uh, volcano Canyon, uh, that was in the forest service. And then there's some County road, bath road is County stuff. And then top of forest Hill or the top of Cal street and forest Hill, that's private land that burned really hot. Mm-hmm and then there was another four miles or so on the state land so a total total of about 16 miles got burned and in some ways it was probably to our advantage that it was under three different land agencies owners if it was all under one it might have been too big of a lift to get to get if it was all under forest service land it might have been a huge lift for one entity to, to do it but we had great relationships with the state and the feds, and we were, we we're dealing with the with the private landowner. Um, but fortunately, we we had been through this before in 2013, and in 2001. So 2013 was the American Fire, 2001 was a Star Fire, and we learned a lot from those years. Um, we went to the Forest Service. Uh, actually they came to us first while the fire was still burning and the district ranger said, you, you probably should think about, you know, postponing the race or canceling the race. And we didn't really want to hear that at all. <laughs> so, there was but I a knew lot that of I knew chatter that's...
0: on the internet about that too. Like there's, Oh, no there, was yeah. there was yeah.
1: <laughs> a lot of chatter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of chatter. So our approach was, we're going to ask them what we can do to get this trail ready. Not, not ask them when are they going to have the trail ready? And that's a very fundamental difference. Wow. If you just ask them, Hey, when's the trail going to be ready for us to run? When you guys, they got a ton, ton of other things to do. Mm-hmm. Your trail, your race is may not be the highest priority. Um, and Gorge waterfalls, one of those races that got shut out for four or five years. Right. Um, you got to have resources and resolve and, um, you got to get. You got to make sure you have good relationships going into these. And and we had a receptive partner in the Forest Service. And this was dry. This this drove all of the all of the fire restoration. It was the Forest Service. Um, they were very creative. We told them we would do whatever we needed to do. And you were there when we passed the when we passed the budget. For the next year, and it was a shortfall of ninety four thousand yeah. dollars. And the board's like, "What? We're we're going to pass this budget? And we don't have uh, you know one hundred thousand dollars. That like, we don't know where that one hundred thousand dollars comes from. But we were committed to making to doing whatever we needed to. So the forest service was really creative. They they kept hotshot crews around when they were before they transferred to their next shift, and they felled hazard trees for us. Um, we ended up paying, uh, money to the local forest service here to keep their seasonal employees on so they could work throughout the winter and and work on the trail. And then we, we hired this, um, trail crew from Plumas County, uh, CRB trail stewards. Uh, they are excellent. They've worked with the forest service here locally many, many times. So they were easy to plug in. We paid them directly. Uh, and that drove, that drove everything as the state, which was also very receptive, but they kept asking, well, what's happening up above? What's happening in the forest service line? Because if, if the forest service wasn't gonna, if the trail in the forest service wasn't gonna open up, I don't think the state would have been as likely to, okay, we'll, we'll do this and we'll let you do that. Sure. <laughs> but, yeah. but the forest service was driving the whole darn thing. If, if they had said, no, we're not gonna be able to get this done, the state probably would have just said, OK, well, we're not going to we're not going to rush into this either. But they didn't. Yeah. Um, and then the private land, we took some um, opportunities in January to fell hazard trees on two and two and a quarter miles of, of, of really burnt land, severely burnt land. Like yeah. Land that didn't have any oak leaves, no, no organic material for two miles, nothing on the ground. Wow. Forested, forested land that was completely torched. Yeah. Um, and that one's been a little bit harder because they're, they um, you know, we don't have a partner there to go do trail work. We have to, we have to assume all the responsibility for that one, but um, it has, it has gone amazingly well. And we got to show most of it, except for the the top of the, the private land, the top of Cal street, but we got to show it to everybody this weekend and we were, we were pretty, pretty proud of it. And in, in addition to, to the, the work by the professionals we we opened up a lot more volunteer days than we have in the last few years and the community responded uh sometimes i i was i was i was humbled by the responses when i'd reach out and say hey will you guys help and suddenly i'd have 20 people like yeah i'll go right now in the rain we worked we worked probably 5 days in the rain yeah insane we walked down in snow and we worked in the rain uh so the volunteers the volunteer effort has been uh humbling and and i think it really goes to how much this trail and this event means to so many people yeah. Um, it's yeah it's pretty special and, and it's humbling at times
0: <laughs> it, you do get that sense you mentioned his name just a second ago but maybe if you could introduce the audience to john katz and any other important characters who don't get the kudos in the limelight that maybe they deserve and putting this trail together and ensuring that at least at this point, knock on wood, that race day will go off without a hitch.
1: Yeah. John Katz has been our trails guy for I think about five or six years now, five years. Uh, He represents both Tevis and the run to the forest service and to the state and the private landowners. Um, He has worked so many hours he he told me his his wife offered to pay him $40,000 to not do this job it's <laughs> a <laughs> volunteer job yeah <laughs> uh, like no i don't even i uh, don't no, 40,000 it's not even on my radar i, I, I <laughs> that's too low <laughs> but, but yeah it's been all consuming for him he he had a career in geology so he's, he's retired and he, he does this cause he loves it, but this is definitely a, a hard year for him. And I would not, we would not be here without him. Uh, he's got really good relationship skills and he just follows through on everything that he says to the forest service and, and to the state and to whoever, um, just a, a incredible man. Um, integrity is top notch yeah. and, um, I yeah. think he's having fun. I, I think so. He's got a bunch of other big projects. We got the Granite Chief Reroute Project. Yeah. That's a 1.5 million project. That's kind of in the background while all this fire stuff's going on. We have we have uh, the Pucker Point Extension that's going on. We got the, the switchbacks above Duncan Canyon Aid Station that we're trying to resolve with the Forest Service. So he's got all these big projects yeah. that for a normal year, those would be really huge lifts. And then to throw this fire stuff on it, yeah. I, there's no way I would be able to do this. With, with I would have been able to do it.
0: Any lessons in leadership through this fire experience? Because this has probably been one of the harder things that you've had to deal with. And at least for me as a board member and an observer, you've never once betrayed any insecurity about whether the race was going to happen. You're fielding probably a million emails from Nervous runners wondering if it's going to get canceled. There's chatter on the internet that there's no way Western states is going to come together. Any lessons in leading an organization through that type of a problem?
1: Um. Wow. I was definitely committed, and so was John Katz. We we were both committed to seeing this through, and it's very similar to running a hundred miler. I got asked several times this weekend. Well, what 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 advice do you have to give to this person? Set your mind on I'm going hundred miles. I'm going to Auburn. And none of these other things that could could take you out, they never come up, right? Like, oh, you could stop at Michigan Bluff, get in a car, you could be eating a hamburger or in a milkshake at Warren's. So John and I both had that. We are just we are going there. Um, maybe it was naive in, in some ways, but I, I never doubted that we'd have the event this year. And John didn't doubt it, and he he definitely fed off of me, and and I fed off of him. Um, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, just to to, to see how every agency and the board and all the constituents, the runners, how everybody just coalesced behind this, like. We're going there. This is what we're going to do. We're working towards this same goal. Uh, it was pretty awesome. It's, it's it's I love being in this position. There's no doubt. I, yeah. I want to be here, even though it's hard at times. I I want to be right where I am right now. Incredible. So if, I, I guess the lesson would be if you if you find yourself in this position, and you're and you say. Boy, I sure wish somebody else was there. I sure wish Craig was wish still there. I right didn't have for. to
0: make this decision. Yeah.
1: Then you're probably not in the right okay. spot, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And and I learned that from a ski patrol or a ski area manager fifteen years ago. Was like if you, if if you are in a stressful situation in leadership and you wish you weren't there, then you're not a leader. You shouldn't be there. You're, you're not that person.
0: Wow. You
1: know, it's pretty yeah. powerful. You may not like what you see. You're like, oh. I don't want to do this. Yeah. You know, I was
0: going to ask you about that too, Craig. You know, you mentioned your blog earlier in the conversation and that's how I was introduced to who you were way back in like probably 2008, 2009. And I knew that you were a ski patroller and uh, I don't know if there's anything else that you want to add to how, because I know a lot of ski patrollers. I have a bunch of buddies who are ski patrollers and they're all just top notch human beings who I would trust with my life. Right. And so I think there's like a special culture and sort of camaraderie in the groups of ski patrollers. But I wonder if also like, if there's anything you want to say about that, but also maybe how it's prepared you for, you know, assuming the role as race director, Western States.
1: I'm absolutely convinced that my years as ski patroller is what prepared me for this job and why I got the job. It wasn't because of the number of pop-ups that I'd put up in aid stations. Cause I'd only done I directed 10 Waldos. That's it. Yeah. When I, when I applied for the job, you know, many race directors put on 10 races a year and I've right. done it my whole career, but I learned in addition to the emergency response and, and, and learning how to deal in, in, you know, crisis situations, which every ski patroller has to do.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I was involved in leadership. So I got to work on several boards. Um, and interface with lots of volunteers and, and paid patrollers. So I I learned how boards operate. I learned how to how to work to affect change in, in organizations that have been around for a while and, and somewhat entrenched. You know, it's not just, you can't just come in with a hammer and we're gonna go this way, right? It takes a while to, to move a big ship in another direction. So, um, and I had incredible teachers um, and mentors over the years through my ski patrol that uh, that taught me so much. Uh, I would not be in this position without without my years as a ski patroller. So cool.
0: This episode is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition and the new salted margarita flavor of Gnarly Hydrate made with extra sodium, 500 milligrams per serving to be exact. As we head into the summer months, hotter weather means more loss of fluid, means greater need to supplement electrolytes. You guys know I am an electrolyte evangelist. Sodium, magnesium, chloride, and potassium are critical for proper hydration level, nerve function, muscle function, and body pH all important stuff for performing at our best out on the trails. Guys, this product might be my favorite gnarly product of all time, you must give it a try, delicious, margarita flavor some savory saltiness to it and all the electrolytes and b vitamins you need especially for us salty sweaters as they say it tastes like the real thing but it won't make you dance on the tables and it won't make you wake up with a headache gnarly hydrate salted margarita find it at gonarly.com use code freetrial 15. So speaking of ski patrolling, they they may be hard at work at Palisades Tahoe. (laughs) It's (laughs) ski patrolling uh, up until race day, it sounds like. So this is uh, my elegant transition to talking about the snowpack, which I'm sure a lot of people are interested to hear the race directors take on. I looked at the stats right before we started recording and it seems like there's 51 inches of snow at the Palisades Tahoe Snowtel. That's 27 inches of snow water equivalent. So how are you anticipating snow potentially impacting the race this year through the high country?
1: Well, it looks very similar to 2019. Th- this cooler weather that we're having right now is not favorable for, for the melt. It may change the melt rates. But getting ready for the training runs, we we went into dusty corners on Thursday and Friday before the race. We got a special... Pass to go through the closure on Mosquito Ridge Road, which is very dangerous. By the way, it's very scary. <laughs> you don't want to drive on Mosquito Ridge Road. <laughs> uh, it is really, really scary. Um, and the 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 snow drifts were almost identical, and the way we cut through them with shovels was almost identical to 2019. So I, I suspect, and the the snow up at Robinson Flat with the toilet. I'll keep posting pictures of, of the snow in the toilet at Robinson Flat because everybody's seen that toilet. <laughs> You'll be amazed at how much it melts here. And you can go look in 2019. I tweeted the same yeah. series of photos. You can see how much snow there was. It was almost the same amount. The most um,
0: photographed well, toilet in Northern California, yeah, that's for sure. Probably.
1: <laughs> uh, the, the Early on, when the snow was piling up, there were comparisons to 1983 over and over and over and over. 83 was a really big snow year for Western states. That was in the Desperate Dreams uh, documentary when, when Jim Howard passed Jim King on the track, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it probably the closest race. I think it's closest race in, in history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we never got that amount of snow and never looked that big right over our course. Southern California, Mammoth, yeah, they got massive, massive snow. Um, but the farther north you go, the the northern snow tell sites, they're not as close to 83 as the southern. So we're kind of in that middle part. Mm-hmm. And now it's not. I mean, May melted so much in, in 83 and 95 we increased our snow water content from April one to May one. And we, we dropped, I think it was 12 inches. We dropped the snow water content. Um, so it 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 was while the snow totals, like the amount of inches that fall that ski areas love to advertise. Cause wow, we got 700 and something inches of snow. That really isn't that important to us. It's the snow water content and the pack, yeah. how dense that pack is. Um, And I think, I think we're going to be looking at the last week of, before the race, we're going to be up there trying to bust into Red Star and Lion Ridge. Uh, We have a little bit more complication at at Lion Ridge because the Cedars, which we drive through, that's a private community in the middle of forest near Soda Springs. um, That's not supposed to be scheduled to be plowed until June 23rd. The day before <laughs> and we're go day. through the cedars. <laughs> so that one could be a little bit harder. Normally that has been plowed early enough that we can drive up there and then, then we, we cut the trees off the snow. If you don't cut the trees off the snow, the the snow won't melt under the trees. Oh. You'll have big berms. So you have to cut the snow. You, you may think, oh, they'll absorb the heat from the sun. And it'll melt. No, no, no. It, it it doesn't go into the pack. The heat doesn't go into the pack. Uh-huh. It goes into the tree. So you have to get in there and cut the trees off as soon as you can so that it'll melt the rest of the snow.
0: Interesting. <laughs> so- See, this is the stuff that nobody would ever know unless they... Uh- <laughs>
1: And LeGrand LeGran Scott, who I mentioned earlier, at Red Star, he's the one who told me that. In 2017, we didn't do that. And he said, Craig, you're going to have these big old mounds of snow. I'm like, man, I live in Oregon. But we <laughs> never had that kind of snow. We never had that kind of heat and sun that we get down here. So the melt, the way it melts here is very different. And he was absolutely right. We left trees on Red Star and there were these huge four-foot, you know, berms of snow where every tree was. Yeah. And it was melted off between them. So we'll get up there as soon as we can try to cut the trees out, and then we'll be probably cutting the last drifts of snow. It usually melts in or doesn't melt in the same spots every year where where the snow, the sun doesn't get it or somehow it, it drifts in there. And we know where those are. So we'll be uh, we'll be trying to bust through. But I, we're, we're going to be on the normal course for sure. Yeah. People wait. People wait so many years now to in the course they don't want to run on a gravel road next to a reservoir yeah. we want to be on the ridge tops and that's what we're going to deliver uh, the views from the ridges are going to be outstanding this year yeah. it's going to be so good
0: well i've i've said it in multiple places including in our board conversations but i think it's setting up to be a very special year if we've got some snow on the course the 50th running Recovering from the devastation of the Mosquito Fire with some of the most incredible athletes in the world assembling at Western States. It's going to be one for the ages, and uh, I can't wait to be a part of it myself. Let's talk a little bit about the um, the Golden Ticket Races, because this was an announcement that Western States made last week. I think this is the earliest the golden ticket docket has been announced in Western States history. So maybe if you want to just run through the docket for the listeners, and then maybe we could talk about some of the considerations we took to arrive at the list.
1: Yeah. So the, well, you were involved every step of the way. So maybe, uh, um, I've
0: got the list up in front of me if that's easier, I can.
1: I'm almost there. Cool. Um, yeah, so we, we, you want to go through the list first and then talk about each one yeah, or
0: we don't need to talk. We don't need to go it maybe in too oh. much depth, but maybe you okay. could go through the list and we could talk. Yeah. So, so
1: CCC is the first one in France in September. That's hundred K and grindstone hundred uh, K, which is now a by UTMB race that's in Virginia. The hundred K will be the first time it's run. It's been, um, I don't know how many years it's been around, but it's been around. I ran it in 2011 and it wasn't a brand new race. So yeah. And then Nice Côte de Jour in France in September. Have a 100, which has been a a golden ticket race for a couple of years now. It's uh, Halloween weekend, October 28th. The Doi Inthanon Thailand by UTMB, 100 miler, which was a golden ticket race this last year. Black Canyon is going to be a golden ticket race again, except... The other races will have top two men and top two women. This one will be a super golden ticket race, and there'll be the top three men and top three women at Black Canyon will get tickets. And then the canyons again, 100K um, at the end of April. So seven races. Um, it's a, it's an interesting mix um, of international and domestic, um, only 200 milers, but it's more hundred milers than we used to have. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited about it. And as you know, it took us a while to, to agree to all this. Wow. Um, and I've seen, I've seen some chatter since we announced it and like who makes the decision uh, uh, <laughs> on uh, Golden Tigger races and, you know, it's us. It needs to be a Hoka race. So Hoka has some influence. And our contract with UTMB, um, they have some say, and Ironman obviously is part of UTMB. So all four of those entities have input on this, on this, on the selection of races, but not, we don't just make the decision by ourselves and not have input from anybody else. Um, but and at, the was, end of,
0: at the end of the day, I mean, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. And I think one of the things that everybody admires about your leadership is that there's always transparency attached to these big decisions. And I think it is good to just talk openly about the various stakeholders. But at the end of the day, it was really, you know, a small group of us who put our heads together on it, solicited feedback in a collaborative way with the partners of Western states. And I don't think there was ever a point where we felt pressured. I know there was at least some chatter out there that this is an indication that you know of course Iron Man and UTMB are coming to take over Western States, which couldn't be further from the truth, but I think we've arrived at a at a really cool event. So um yeah.
1: And and we want the most competitive events, right? That's what these races are about. We we don't want we we're not solely driven by geographic distribution we want to have races that are going to be the most competitive well the bayou tmb races are likely to be the most competitive races in the next few years and that's that's a fact right how how are we going to deny that that why would we stay away from those races just because we we i don't know whatever whatever your reasons are for wanting to stay away yeah and
0: i i think obviously there's some people who would be disappointed. For example, Bandera is not on the list after being a golden ticket race for many years. Tarawera is no longer a golden ticket race, and they are one of the part of the UTMB World Series. But, you know, things evolve, things change. And I think there's a good rationale for everything. Obviously, one of the things that Western states, I think, has been criticized for and the sport has been criticized for is sort of a West Coast geographical bias and so incorporating grindstone given the beast coast an opportunity to to show up on their home trails and compete for these amazing golden tickets is uh i think a great opportunity for that community i talked to clark zealand the race director myself about whether it should be the 100 miler or the 100k and we we decided to go with the, the 100k here for the first time at grindstone. I think CCC creates a really interesting new dynamic in the golden ticket conversation. Uh, hardcore fans will know that UTMB has been a golden ticket race for the last couple of years. And we talked internally about how, yeah, sometimes it feels like that golden ticket conversation gets lost amid, amid the the hoopla of UTMB week, but racing a on that stage, it is, you know, some of the most densely talented competitive fields in the world every season. And so CCC, we thought would be a fun new addition, removing UTMB. Um, and then the three bagger at Black Canyons, I think is, uh, also a fun new innovation, a fun new development, um, for the golden ticket, Docket here. And that race obviously is just such a top quality event that's drawn fabulous competition. They have great media live stream around it. So it creates fantastic conversation about it, which is value additive to um, Western states. So keeping that conversation sort of top of mind for trail runners in the early spring season. So um, yeah, I think a lot to be excited for, for this docket, but I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Craig, but I think also, you know, this is an evolving thing and nothing's set in stone forever. And I think uh, we, yeah, it's, it's fun to have, at least from my perspective, like some continuity, some consistency, and, and then also some, some newness to it.
1: Yeah. And I, I want to make sure people know or let people know that we don't have any contracts with any of these races. They're not paying us a fee. We're not, we're not, there. there's no financial arrangement between these races. And um, most of the races absolutely love being golden ticket races because it enhances their competition and their, their exposure. And you look at Jamil's races, my God, what Black Canyon has exploded when I was there this year. I talked to his mom and his mom said, um, when they started this race, their goal was to get enough runners. So it would be a Western States qualifier, just a qualifier. And now it's,
0: it's one of the biggest races in the country, in the country. Absolutely. <laughs> and
1: it's really cool to have watched that. And he, he just texted me, you know, just texted me before this call and, uh, um, he's going to do more, uh, than he's done in the past. And I'll, I'll share it with you in a bit, but, okay. um, yeah, he's just really excited about this, and and the East Coast in, in Texas, as AJW pointed out, now the East Coast loves me again, but Texans Texans hate me. You know, it's like, I, per, it wasn't me personally who made the decisions, but yeah. it was it was all of us. Um, I went to Bandera again this year, and it, it was a great race, it, it, there was nothing wrong with this. this isn't an indictment against it. It was definitely in the in the running until really late and we went with grindstone and um we we hear the complaints we hear the the east Coasters saying why don't you love us um but if three west coasters or colorado or utah folks go and win those golden tickets at <laughs> grindstone yeah. Okay. Yeah. hey guys you east coasters you better you show better, up you better you better show up exactly show up, up. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> show up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, it, it was really fun having you in the mix this year too because you just you just know the fields and you know the races better than than any of us um so it was really yeah. fun to have well,
0: it was an honor for me and yeah i think there's always going to be conversation and feedback both positive and negative negative. and i think one of the great things about you and about western states in general is being open to feedback and and you know being able to Like I said earlier, transparency has always been sort of the core value in the Craig Thornley principles of race directing, I feel like. And so being willing to sort of stand behind decisions, explain the rationale behind it, but also honestly listen to feedback and, and see where we can do better in the future. But this is the docket for 2024. And I think there's a lot to be
1: excited about. Yeah. And one more word on the internationals. So the, the the primary reason we have more international races now is we lost UTWT. Right. UTWT, the Ultra World Tour, we used to get six international athletes. When that went away, we had no avenue for overseas athletes to come into the race. So we made the shift to uh, instead of all domestic golden ticket races, hey, we'll, we'll put races around the world. So that, that's where that Change came from it. It isn't because of UTMB, but um, the World Series obviously evolved from Ultra Trail World Tour. So we were already connected in there, and uh, it w- wasn't hard for us to to listen to them on the on the races that they they suggest that we should we should include. And, yeah. Um, so yeah, I want people to know that. Yeah, that's why those international races started. Absolutely, so,
0: I think the European continent. Deserves two golden ticket races just given the density of competition and mm-hmm. th- the seriousness with which the athletes compete over there. It's a, a, absolutely a, a spectacle. And obviously, I think Thailand provided some really great new characters that are going to be coming to Western States this year. Um, that have increased sort of like the Asian professional athlete representation in the Western States field, really for the first time that I can remember. And so, yeah, it's a new, new era, a new day. And yeah, this will be a constantly ever evolving thing. Maybe every year we'll have to record one of these podcasts and <laughs> go through the the new docket. Craig, we'll start kind of winding down now, but I wanted to just tick off a couple more things before we get to my, my closing philosophical questions. <laughs> Um, one thing that struck me in sort of our conversations in the board is to the the extent to which you think about sort of the key man risk that you present to the race and sort of ensuring that the race will be in good hands if God forbid something terrible happened to you. So I'd love for you to just maybe talk a little bit about how you think about that, about how you because I, I think it's potentially counterintuitive, you know, when you are the race director and you are the important guy, you sort of want to feel like, Oh, this thing couldn't go off without me, but you've sort of intentionally orchestrated things so that, you know, again, God forbid something happened to you, you know, the race wouldn't be left in the lurch. Can you talk yeah, about that?
1: I, like I said already, I definitely want to be in this seat. I'm not trying to, to, Step away, or, or plan for my exit. But I was preparing for PTL last year, and I was I was doing some stuff in the mountains. I I, I joined one call, one Zoom call with you at twelve thousand feet on Mount Shasta. <laughs> but i done I'd gotten on some in some sketchy places, and Diana, the president, she would, she was so worried that something was going to happen to me before the race. <laughs> And it definitely could have. It, it absolutely can anytime. And and I don't want the race to suffer at all if something were to happen to me. Um, but when you're the sole employee, it, it definitely is 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 exposure. That the the organization, the race is exposed uh, to some you know potential risk. Um, bringing in carry the new administrative assistant, I think it's really going to help because there were a lot of details in my head that only I know about. And I don't like that. And I don't want that to be the case. Um, there's a lot of really smart people that I've delegated out to, and they can do their jobs, but there still needs to be someone who has all of the uh, details of the race in their head. And, and those key people don't have the whole thing in their head and none of the board members have the whole thing in their head either. So we're trying to bring Carrie up to speed and already she probably has more than than most of the other people that have been working around the race for a lot of years. Um, but yeah, very similar to what we do on race day with the RD twos they make decisions on my behalf. I, yeah, I still am the, I'm still the leader. I get to take, the blame if something goes bad or I get to take the credit when things go right. Um, but yeah, I don't want the race to be exposed.
0: No, yeah, that's great. So speaking of RD2s, I'd love for you to maybe just say a couple more words about Lori, your wife, who's one of oh. those RD2s. She was out at uh, training camp this weekend and I know, you get the disproportionate amount of recognition, but that she plays a big role in the Western States community and in the race itself. So maybe give her some
1: shine before we get to our final questions here. She, she has been doing a lot since uh, we started doing Waldo together. So we've been, uh, she doesn't want to be the one making decisions. She's told me that time and time again, she would not want to be the one in charge, but she is, uh, she wants to be the person who helps somebody else happens to be me, you know, help somebody else. Um, I I don't even know if I could articulate everything that she does for the race. Um, on race weekend, um, RD2 is just one of the things that she does. Um, pre, pre pre-race, we're up at Olympic Valley when we have, when we have those get togethers with the sponsors and, uh, she's done all of that she does all the room allocations all the boardroom allocations <laughs> that is tedious tedious work you know um, she runs on training runs. she did two aid stations uh, one on saturday and one on monday she does volunteer shirts every year she's really proud of the volunteer shirts i i, I can't Tell her what's going to be on the volunteer shirts. She gets to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> or, or she does tell me. Yeah. Um, but we we work together at other races too. We work at Pine to Palm. We work at at Waldo. And she's a radio operator. She she can run net control. She she could do it all by herself without yeah. me, but she wouldn't want to be the one that got blamed for a decision that sure, didn't go right. Yeah. But but she's very capable. She, she could do this job. Um, but she just doesn't want to, (laughs) she wants to be in the background.
0: Thanks for sharing that. So final closing philosophical questions for you here, Craig, no pressure. These can just be quick hitters. The first one is who is one person that you admire can be inside or outside of sport. can be living or dead. And why is it that you admire that person?
1: Yeah. So you, you, Shared these questions with me like 20 minutes before or 40 minutes before. (laughs) I, I, I think. I look back at all the people who mentored me or helped me over the years that got me to this point. And I I think a lot about them and I kind of get emotional when I think about it. Because people really spent a lot of time on me.
0: Yeah.
1: um, And I'm not exactly sure why, but, but they did and I'm forever grateful for 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 the for those people who who did but if I if I were to look at one person right now um, I think I think Tony Rossman who was on our board and he's now on our advisory council he had he had a stroke he's a land use attorney was responsible for for helping us get forever permission to go through Grand Chief And I really wish he was here right now with this, with this Ryan property. I I really missed him. Uh, You never got to see him as a board member when he was, when he still had all his his faculties. But what was so awesome about Tony is we'd have these, we'd have these contentious discussions and people would get into their corners and you've seen this already. (laughs) I'm in plenty of board meetings or, or committees And people just get entrenched, right? And Tony would always come at the end end of the discussions. He he'd find the middle ground. Mm. He was he was a master at that, and Mm. we could really use him now, especially right now with the with the private land stuff. But I I just admired that I admired that about him that he was always, no matter where his position was, he could look at the other position and he, he totally respected the dissenting view and he'd bring us, he'd bring us to the middle ground. And so many times I, I wish I would do that. I I, I tend to stay in my corner a little more. Um, and and I, I need to be more like Tony more often.
0: That's so beautiful, Craig. And I'm just pulling up on my computer. This something that I want to incorporate either in the pre-race show or in the broadcast itself. And that is, Tony Rossman's op-ed that he wrote to the LA times in, I think it was 1986, just after the 1986 Western States 100. It is goosebumps written material. And I want to read the entirety of it, uh, maybe at the pre-race interview show, uh, before race weekend, or maybe on the, the broadcast itself. I won't bore our listeners by reading the whole thing here, but man, is it a perfect articulation of what makes the race so special final question for you here craig what is one truth that you've learned about yourself or about life in general through your participation in sport
1: wow well again you gave me 40 minutes to think about this one (laughs) Um, um you know one thing i have i have pulled from my running 100 milers is I know I'm not going to quit on things. I know that no matter how bad things can get or how low they can get, I know I can last. And I use that a lot. I, I rely on that a lot. Like look, I run, I run 100 miles, or I used to run 100 miles. Um, I know I can, I can do this, and and I pull on that all the time, like. I'm not going to quit. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm, I'm, I can outlast if if it's a, if it's, if it's a relationship with a, with a land agency or somebody else, like you're not going to wear me down. You're not going to wear me down.
0: (laughs) Yes. I love it. I love it. Well, Craig. Yeah. What a great place to end. You're a good man. You're a great leader. We're lucky to have you as the race director of Western States. I hope you get some rest in the next uh, four weeks before we see each other again in Olympic Valley. And and yeah, you say you're not a hundred mile runner anymore, but you have nine finishes at the Western States 100, which means eventually you're going to need to get that thousand mile buckle. So yeah,
1: yeah, I will. And and thank you, Dylan. And I have really enjoyed you on the board. Um, it's been it's been awesome having. Uh, an elite runner on the, on the board and the perspective that you bring, uh, it's really, it's really fun for me to Craig. have you on the board.
0: Oh, well, it's an honor for me too, Craig. So thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: All right. See you Dylan.
0: There you have it folks, Craig Thornley, pillar of integrity. He's finally been a guest on the podcast. I appreciate it his willingness to come on the show, speak openly about his role and his history with the Western States, the most iconic event in the sport. Hope you all enjoyed the conversation. Free Trail Pro members, please do jump in Slack. Let me know if you have feedback. We'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. If you're not a member, OMG, are you missing out? Free Trail Pro membership is only $10 a month or $96 for the year, and there is a free trial. So please do come say hello. We would love to have you part of our Vibrant, powerful, supportive community. A big thank you to our sponsors. Speedland, run Use code FreeTrail10 for 10% off the GS TAM. Gnarly Nutrition, visit gonarly.com, use code FreeTrail15 for 15% off these incredible nutrition products, HVMN, visit hvmn.com, use code freetrial 20 for 20% off the Ketone IQ product. Appreciate you all for listening. I'm always grateful for the amazing audience who tunes into the show, especially those of you who listen all the way to the end. <laughs> Appreciate you all so much. Talk soon, love you, bye.